Taylor Swift playing Melbourne tonight. And one person who is going is Steve Simpson. Steve is no stranger to music. He played with the Jordan Luck Band. He's got his own band. Steve Simpson, good to have you here on RNZ. G'day, Wallace. How are you? Uh, you, you didn't want to play a little bit of Taylor Swift to, uh, to lead into this? <laughs> we've, been playing ta- we've been playing Taylor Swift uh, ad infinitum. But I was thinking, you I'm know... I'm sure you have. <laughs> you're a huge music fan, Steve. You've got your own band. But I had you pegged as like a Pearl Jam fan or the Pixies <laughs> or 10CC. What are you doing there? Look, uh, Wallace, I'm, uh, I'm with some bona fide uh, Swifties. Um, I've got two daughters. One of my daughters is a T-Swizzler, um, which is a TikTok. <laughs> They're TikTokers, Wallace, and, um, you know, they are exclusively Taylor Swift, so you can look them up on TikTok. They had a bit of a, uh, a viral moment, four million views of a Taylor Swift dance they did, the Taylor oh. Swift dancers. Did the dance themselves got recreated like a hundred thousand times? So, so I'm with I'm with some bona fide bands, and um, I've I've drunk in the Kool Aid myself. <laughs> Wallace, you just got to roll with it. <laughs> Let's go around the panel, Steve. See if anybody else is drunk in the Kool Aid. Uh, Johnny, uh, what about you? Are you a bit envious of Steve actually being there? Because it's quite a in terms of cultural events, it's quite seismic. It is quite seismic. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, I, I'm, I'm not a big Swifty, I have to admit, although I do absolutely appreciate the uh, lyrical talent. Uh, and I, and I, can, I bet it would be an amazing buzz over there. I was actually having this discussion in our office the other day, and we were talking about whether is, is, is Taylor Swift that one artist where we're at a time where all generations are kind of engaged uh, with one star. You know, Michael Jackson yeah, was that at one yes. point. We've got these artists of a generation. Madonna had that kind of star power. You know, do, do you consider... Um, Steve, that you know, Taylor Swift is is in that category. I, I kind of do. I kind of think those '80s superstars are the only thing you can really compare the phenomenon that she is at the moment to the mm. the Michael Jackson, the Prince, the Madonna, the maybe the Bruce Springsteen, because music taste is so you know varied and disparate. And there's um, there's not that many superstar artists that people rally behind anymore so she has reached that i think there is a it's harder to get there uh, if anything she's actually gone beyond it if you look at the the record wow. she's breaking it's, it's it's pretty amazing uh georgie well i'm very envious I had a, a, a cohort of friends all with a variety of screens trying to get tickets and we were unsuccessful. So, um, yeah, I'm, I know. I'm annoyed at you, if anything. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean, just getting, just getting tickets, Steve, how did you manage that? Look, Wallace, as you know, I'm always looking for the inside track and there weren't <laughs> any. You just, you just had to join the queue and like everybody else, um, we had multiple screens and, and, and uh, you know, a few deputised mm. operators trying to get them for us. And, and in the end, it was one of my daughters who got lucky on her cell phone while she was working in a shop. So um, she got four. And then we're with another family. Um, there's a couple of us um, Swifty dads here. Oh, and um, he managed to, he got, he managed, we're up in the nosebleeds. The girls are down on the, the floor, but we managed to get <laughs> on the inside of the venue, which is better than waiting um, outside. Hey, Steve, we're going we're gonna, to um, come back to you on Monday just to see how it is. I've got to say myself, I'm quite jealous. I mean, I went to see Prince in Melbourne uh, many years ago. That was big, but this might even be bigger. So, um, hey, have a great night, Steve. Thank you, Wallace. Good to talk to you. All right. Uh, that's Steve Simpson there uh, in the event of a lifetime. Gosh, Taylor Swift live. Imagine that. Um, 
different topic here. First home buyers, uh, rich people. One economist says properties are valued at seven times the average household income, according to CoreLogic data. Economist Sharmaville Jakob, speaking to staff, said that first-time buyers are, quote, not young people on moderate incomes. They are rich people who are first-time buyers because we've filtered out everything else. And I thought we have to uh, get an economist on to talk about this. Uh, with us is ASB economist Nathaniel Keel. Kia ora, Nathaniel. Good, Wallace. How are you? Good. Um, in a sense, a provocative statement, but um, you know, some may say there's a bit of a truth to it. If you are trying to get your first time prohibitive, what do you make of it? Well, um, I think it was Gore Vidal who said that a narcissist is somebody better looking than you are, and I suspect there's kind of a similar thing going on um, in terms of you know, rich not really being a scientific term. Anybody um, earning more than you are might be uh, rich in, in someone's view, but Certainly what we know is that first-home buyers uh, tend to earn more than the kind of average household, and we know that affordability has gotten a lot worse over the last 10 to 20 years as well. So there's definitely quite a big kernel of truth there. Well, I mean, just looking at the data, and I'm just looking up the, um, this is the Herald report of this uh, five days ago, buying an average price home nationally would require an income now of $154,000. 697 or 27 k higher than the typical Kiwi household income are clearly unsustainable, Nathaniel. Yeah, I think that's clearly the case. Um, you know, if we kind of want to look at things in a historical sense, if we think back to, you know, the early 90s, which is when I was born, uh, wages have kind of roughly doubled since then. House prices have gone up more like six or seven folds. So, right. Um, it really is a historically kind of unusual situation that we find ourselves in. It's quite an issue in Nelson, isn't it, um, house affordability? Uh, and also with renting as well, Johnny? It's it's actually a massive issue. I think I believe the um, da- latest kind of regional data has Nelson and Tasman. Yeah. Uh, it's second and third behind Auckland if you compare um, average wages to to house prices. So it's it's a major issue here. Uh, I was I was actually quite floored by um, reading that article. I, the stat that really stood out to me was mortgage repayments as a percentage of annual household income at forty nine percent, and I just thought that was outrageous. I mean I, I'm I'm not a homeowner myself, but um, you know on, on on this topic, I, I don't actually envy uh, first home buyers. I don't think of uh, young people my age getting, who got into the housing market over the last few years at the peak and are now facing big interest rates as rich. In fact, I, I feel quite sorry for them. Um, they're in a, many of them are in a very, very difficult position. Um, but I'm, I'm in that category that you talk about. I'm, I'm certainly not pleading poverty. I earn a decent income. I live a good lifestyle. Um, but, but I'm not a homeowner. We, we haven't got there yet. Nathaniel, I was going to ask you, you know, we've been talking about housing for years now um, and the range of affordability is just so far out of whack that, you know, there are only two factors, right? You can either get a huge decrease in house prices, which is, you know, politically impossible uh, and would cause huge other issues, or you can get a kind of massive growth in, in household incomes, which based on the, you know, 45 cents offered up in the minimum wage this year is looking a bit unlikely. How, how Realistically, how long is it actually going to take or will we ever get back to affordability? Like, where does this actually go from here? Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. It's one of those kind of issues that once the genie's out of the bottle, it's really hard to put it back in without kind of uh, incurring some pretty substantial costs for the rest of the economy. So, you know, as you say, 
big decline, not likely to be very good for sort of things like household spending and construction and so on that we really need to, you know, power uh, growth and power employment. Um, but at the same time, if you just kind of increase wages without uh, increasing incomes, then mm. um, that's going to be inflationary. So what we really need to see is a bit more of a focus on uh, growing productivity in the economy. Um, I don't know how easy that's going to be to achieve. It's something that we've struggled with for years. Mm. Um, but that's really kind of the only way um, out of this, this mess. Yeah, can I just bring up before Georgie, um, uh, AJ sums this up. I'm glad you're featuring the story. A key stat that stood out for me as an economics student is that the long-term average spending on mortgage repayments as a percentage of gross income is 37%. Currently, it's around 50 as we said. Um, what are the implications of this for businesses and actually the economy as a whole when such a proportion of income is going to pay simply for habitation, which I think is a great point, Georgie. Well, that's right. It was always that sort of magic ratio of a third, a third, a third, right? I mean, that's obviously long gone. Um, I just think this whole housing issue is just the single biggest problem that we need to fix in this country because it it creates, has so many downstream effects, um, whether you're a homeowner or uh, a renter, but there, we are a, a, a two-class society now at this point, aren't we, Nathaniel? Homeowners and non-homeowners. Yeah, um, I mean, you know, certainly, um, I think you can kind of divide the economy into people who are, you know, um, either kind of in generational terms, you know, older generations potentially on the ladder, and younger people uh, struggling to get on. Uh, people who've maybe kind of inherited property versus those whose families aren't on the ladder at all. So mm. um, there are definitely some pretty quite serious, um, you know, social implications from that divide. Very good, Nathaniel. Kia ora. Uh, that's ASB economist Nathaniel Keel. We might come back to that next week, actually. If you are a couple who uh, are on the process or in the process of trying to buy their first home... Get in touch with me. Email me at the panel at rnz.co. Sorry, excuse me. The panel at rnz.co.nz. Tell us a story uh, and how you are finding things. 4.43 here uh, on the panel, RNZ National. Nice to have your company. We have Georgie Stiliano and Johnny O'Donnell with us this Friday afternoon. And the week was, of course, also dominated by the Auckland Rail issue. Starting Monday afternoon when 80 trains were cancelled, massively delaying commuters trying to get home, Kiwi Rail authorities said track temperatures had reached up to 48 degrees Celsius. Now many have pointed to the years of underinvestment. Parts of Auckland's rail network have not been properly upgraded since the 1940s, Kiwi Rail bosses have told MPs uh, yesterday. Uh, well I thought How on earth do they manage in Australia where they have trains and temperatures soaring to extraordinary levels? And is there a solution? Because one thing is certain, these cancellations will happen again. With us is Peter Newman. He's a a professor of sustainability at Curtin University, Perth. He was on the board of Infrastructure Australia for years and is the coordinating lead author for the IPCC in Transport. Professor Peter Newman, welcome to the program. G'day, Andy. Nice to have you on. Wallace here, uh, Peter. First, Wallace, sorry. sorry. <laughs> no, no worries, Peter. Firstly, give us an explainer. Just how does the heat affect rail tracks? Well, 
iron, steel expands when it's heated and always has. And um, it's been an issue, but uh, if you've got coal country uh, like the UK where rail started, it wasn't much of an issue. Yeah. Um, but as soon as you get into the deserts of the world, uh, it's always been an issue. Um, so it's always been dealt with by various means. <clears throat> And we've certainly had to deal with it in Perth. We're just uh, approaching our 12th day over 40 um, in this month. And um, we don't have any problem with our rail system now because it's a new one. It's um, I was part of the uh, 40 years ago when we won the, the rail back uh, and, and the old diesel systems that we had uh, when we electrified, uh, were given to Auckland, and that was their, your first uh, train for some time. Uh, so we had a bit of a deal there for a while. Um, anyway, th- th- that, uh, that's a long time ago. Uh, but since then, we've built seven new rail lines, and each of them are built with a new technology, which means a long piece of rail that's heavily connected into a concrete sleeper, uh, and those concrete sleepers are firmly embedded so that all of the energy as the rail expands goes into those concrete sleepers and into the ground. So instead of it buckling up uh, because it's contained only in that piece of uh, steel, it gets taken away. Now, that's that's um, a pretty uh, careful piece of engineering that's been scientifically done and uh, we do not have any issues. Extraordinary. But some of the old lines in other parts of Australia are still expanding and, and buckling. Well, there you go. This is actually quite extraordinary. You're hearing here uh, what, Georgie, what investment means. Uh, so yeah, they're approaching their 12th day, over 40 mm. degrees Celsius, no issues of buckling. Yet here, the super city cancellations georgie well we obviously thank you for the hand-me-down trains and we've obviously not uh, not touched them since then um so in in perth when you've got the you've got the fancy trains we've got the rubbish ones but are there any any other measures that have to sort of take place so does a train have to slow down uh travel at you know slower speeds for for that particular day or is the frequency of of a service affected or are you basically just good to go well you're pretty much good to go there is the odd point where something might go wrong and you tend to have trains that are slowed at that point but i in my experience we've had very little of that over this summer it's it's like we've worked out the system now, uh, pretty much able to deal with the extremes. And the reality is every city in the world is getting hotter. And, uh, you know, they're all going to have to adapt to this. So they're all rapidly putting in these systems of rails and replacing the old ones. You just have to do it. Amazing. Johnny? I'm, I'm going to take the unusual stance here as a South Islander and stick up for Auckland. Uh, I, I'm just, just hearing that has reinforced something that I've been thinking about loads recently, which is just how poorly we invest in our main centre. Um, and I just, you know, the hand-me-downs uh, is, is it tells quite a story, really, doesn't it? And even just thinking about the uh, and hearing the kind of temperature restrictions that exist uh, across the ditch, of course, you know, we're nowhere near those uh, and still buckling. And it's just, 
you know, when I think about the Harbour Bridge and the issues that you've um, had there, thinking about the servicing of the trains beyond heat, um, of course, yeah. the disruptions you've had, I really do feel as for you as, an, as a big international city, you know, critical for our whole country to have infrastructure buckling like this is, well, a, is a really bad thing for all of us. It's a good point, Peter. Uh, it's a good point, Johnny. And Peter, listen to that. I mean, this is uh, often cited as one of the, uh, what could be or should be a world-class city. But when you see the issues that Auckland City, a city of 1.6 million people, are having here, something as fundamental as track cancellations, uh, and it's what, um, you know, around 28 degrees Celsius, what, what, do you, what do you make of what's happening here? What do you, how do you see Auckland City? Well, I've been 12 to 15 times to Auckland to talk about rail systems at various times and big meetings and small ones. And uh, we're now talking to various groups about trackless trams, which are the replacement for light rail that uh, is a very new technology and very right. interesting because it doesn't have tracks at all. It's, it, uh, it, it uses rubber wheels on the road and it, it is, in fact, a very significant advance uh, to come out of high-speed rail. Um, and uh, that is uh, part of the system as well. Um, but, look, I, I just find it exciting to hear that you're talking about rail at all there because there was a time when everybody wanted to say Auckland's going to be the last uh, city uh, having its rail system closed down altogether. Um, but it has begun growing and it is needing to leapfrog into the future because rail is a very important part of any city economy. Uh, we've got a new study coming out shortly which shows that rail connections and activated places around stations are the key to the economy of future cities and it will be the basis of making a good city for the future. It needs good technology, it needs investment, you cannot do without it. This is the only way for the future. Gosh. Finally, Peter, can I just ask you, because your rail system in Perth there, a beautiful city too, by the way, your rail system in Perth there, uh, your, your 12th day of um, 40 degrees Celsius, uh, the rail track's just fine. What would it take for us to get the rail system that you have? Just a lot more investment. Yeah, I'm afraid there is no way past that right. unless you can do it in some public-private uh, system where, uh, and, and this is not a silly idea because uh, there are many rail systems like the English ones that have been br bringing in private sector involvement um, where they make money out of the stations around them as well as the patronage levels. Um, all of that can be done in partnership and so the new government which probably more committed to that approach. There are ways of finding the money. And uh, in, in England, for example, when they privatised their railway, everyone said, oh, it'll, it'll go downhill. Well, it's tripled in size across the whole country uh, since that time. It has not looked back. So you do need to bring money in. And right. if you can't do it with government money, you've got to do it in partnership. Good to have you on, Peter. Hope to have you on again. That was so interesting. Uh, appreciate your time.
that's Peter Newman, Professor of Sustainability at Curtin University, Perth. He was on the board of Infrastructure Australia for years. He's the coordinating lead author for the IPCC on transport, a big wig when it comes to uh, rail development uh, and saying that, uh, oh gosh, Perth has got this next level mm. rail system where it just doesn't bucket. Quite extraordinary to hear that, eh, Georgie? Unbelievable. They'll be down the street on their rubber tracks and the trackless trams <laughs> and they can then just give us um, the fancy trains as the yeah. next lot of hand-me-downs. But no, it's um, <laughs> it's it makes you cringe a little bit when you hear stuff mm. like that in terms of our biggest city. And I agree with you, Johnny. We've 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 not put enough um, enough love into that city for a while. If you want to go back and listen to what uh, Peter Newman said, just go uh, to rnz.co.nz slash the panel and you'll find his um, his uh, comments embedded in what's called part two. Also, don't forget the panel is on Spotify. It's on iTunes, on Apple and on the RNZ app. Finally, though, uh, from trains to cars, are you a time waster if you back in to a car park instead of nose in. We had so much response to this, we thought we've got to go back to it. And Jeff got in touch. He's got a class five license. In the past, he had a competition license. He'll know the real deal on this particular issue. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hi, Wallace, panel and listeners. More... I don't know if I really know the real deal. <laughs> I've got some thoughts. On well, that. you've got you've you've got a bit of nelson on this, Jeff, and we had more response on this than any other topic. So, um, I perhaps wrongly call people who you go you go to your local supermarket and someone decides to be a time waster and reverse and back in. What the heck? You said actually, it's a good thing, Jeff. Yeah. Well, most people don't have the skill. I've been thinking about this. Most people don't have the skill to be able to reverse in using the mirrors. Uh, and that is the whole key to the issue. I'd say 80% of people are not skilled in that, oh. that, uh, that way at all. But the easiest way, and I always scan the car parks as I go in, to find a car park where I can go straight through and park in the, in the, the one on the offside. Mm. So there's no reversing. Oh, that's a good point, Georgie. Yeah, that's a great little hack. I take that. But I, I agree with you. I wouldn't say you're a time waster if you <laughs> back in. You're a risk taker because I would back myself skill-wise, but when under pressure in in a car park, especially a supermarket one, with a, people all around you, there's no way I'm going to be taking the risk of backing in. I'm right. going in nose first. Georgie, do you not think there's far more risks in a busy supermarket car park um, and reversing out because often you've uh, got a high-sided vehicle on both sides and you're solely reliant as you reverse out uh, of the traffic coming from mm. either direction to give way to you. Mm. Uh, that's, there's, you know, that's mm. my thoughts. That's you, a good point. In a, in, I, a park, in a park, you've got to go, you've got two things. If you, you've got to either go in forward and reverse out or you reverse in and you drive mm. out forward. And if you reverse into a car park, You've driven up to the car park area, you've surveyed the thing, you can see whether there's kids around or, or pedestrians or other cars in your road, and if you've got somebody tailgating you, you don't even bother to try and do that because you know they sort of get mm. a bit stroppy oh. at that, so you, you yep. just you go and look for something you else. you thought a lot about this, Jeff. Let's bring Johnny in. 
This is a lot of parking chat for a Friday afternoon, I have to say. Um, but I, it sounds like uh, I, I didn't realise this was uh, such a stress for people. I think uh, everyone needs to come to Nelson and chill out. I don't, yeah. I, people are sounds very good. patient here. I've, I don't think I've ever, ever had anyone get aggravated while I park, you know, back into a park. That seems oh, wow. quite unreasonable. No, the, chill out, everyone. a lot of horn bedding <laughs> that will take place in Wellington if you take too long. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how it really sort of um, got people going, Jeff this one and a lot of people actually said Wallace you're wrong we're not time time wasters uh, and, and don't stereotype as all boomers do this I, 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 that was that was not me that was a text uh, who said that Jeff um, but a lot of people said actually you know what it's actually more safe it's safer to do it the way you're suggesting Jeff definitely it just takes longer it, yeah, no it doesn't it takes it, it takes no longer to back into a car park than it does to reverse oh, out of a car park. come on, rubbish. Oh, well, you need to up your driving skill a little bit <laughs> if it's like that. No wonder we have such half-wit drivers around the place. You... All right, so uh, sounds like I'm coming to you for some uh, driving practice there, Jeff. No, look, uh, I think I've had a lot of experience, but I've got a lot to learn. And... Uh, you know, by no means am I perfect. I've got, I make my share, good share of mistakes. It's lovely to have you on the show, Jeff, on a Friday. Okay. Yeah, thanks thank for joining you. us. All the best for the weekend. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks, and look, uh, what a wonderful panel. Johnny O'Donnell, George Stiliano, kia ora to you both. I really appreciate your time. Um, and uh, have a great weekend to you. Thank you, Wallace. Very Wallace, good. Kia and a big thank you to Sally Ward for producing the show. I am back on Monday afternoon. You know the time it's 3.45. I will see you then. Checkpoint with Lisa Owen is next. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.